You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Before we get started with the episode, we have a new sponsor that we would like to tell you about. I'm very excited that they are joining House of L. It's BlueChew.com. That's right, BlueChew.com. And just so you don't have any preconceived notions, BlueChew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in a chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. If you're one of those guys that needs a little bit of extra confidence when it's time to have fun, you should go to BlueChew.com. Most guys don't want to talk about anything having to do with ED, and trust me, the folks over at BlueChew.com completely understand that. But the sexiest thing is to do something about ED. The sexiest thing is for you and your partner to have an active and fun sex life, and BlueChew.com can help you with that. You want your opportunities to count. Understand that with this, there are no embarrassing doctor's visits There's no awkward conversations, no waiting in line at the pharmacy, and it ships right to your front door. Even that, it's in a discreet package, so you don't have to worry about anyone getting into your business that doesn't need to be getting into your business. If you don't like swallowing pills, don't worry. They've got the Blue Chew tablets that are chewable. Get it? BlueChew.com. So if you find that you're lagging behind a little bit and you just don't have the same type of confidence that you used to, and you want to get back in the game, BlueChew.com is the way that you can do it. We've got something for you. If you use the promo code HOUSEOFL at checkout, just pay $5 shipping. That's it. That's BlueChew.com promo code HOUSEOFL to receive your first month for free. If you're in the market, if you need it, if you want to go back to having a good time and not having any of this stuff like on your head, BlueChew.com. And now, let's get down with the episode. Yo, welcome into the House of L podcast. I'm Lawrence Holmes. Thanks so much for hanging out on today's episode. Today's episode, I'm so excited about it because Lavelle is actually one of those people that should have been on the podcast a long, 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 long time ago. And to tell you the truth, I'm not sure why he wasn't on the podcast. So I think you're going to really enjoy this episode with him. Before we get to it, wanted to tell you, uh, thank you for the support that you continue to show House of L. It's really, really appreciated. 
we keep seeing incredible gains for sports adjacent. If you haven't listened to that podcast, it comes out every Wednesday night. I know because I'm the one that's putting the podcast up on Wednesday nights. Sometimes the guys get it to me early, like last week, and sometimes they're like, don't go to sleep yet. We're not done. But it's a lot of fun. You should be listening to it every week. Jason Leisure, Russ Dorsey, Anthony Gill. It's fun and funny. So go back and look. If you haven't already, go back and look at recent episodes. I promise you will enjoy yourself. And thanks to Sheets and Giggles. That's a real company, by the way. Sheets and Giggles. They sent me. I, I, SA23 is the promo code if you want to save 23%. They sent me Sheets because I'm the executive producer of the Sports Adjacent Podcast. And they are phenomenal. So get you some. But please listen to the Sports Adjacent Podcast. And I'm going to experiment with some things over the next few months. I really, really want to do some neighborhood pods meaning i want to do podcasts where we spotlight a neighborhood and talk with people who grew up in that neighborhood i haven't figured out if if i'm only going to do this on house of l or if i'm going to pitch this to someplace else i have a lot of ideas and not a lot of time to execute all of them So sometimes I have to give ideas away, but I should probably get paid for that, right? The crazy thing is, is that Lavelle and I grew up in the same neighborhood, which is part of the reason that I want to, I wanted him to have this, be on this episode, and I wanted to talk with him for a long time. Because I knew that he was from the south side. And then I found out like kind of where. And we had a very parallel track growing up. He's older than I am. But we have a very parallel track of experience. And it was so fun to be able to talk with him about that. He spent decades covering baseball. In Kansas City and in Minnesota, but he's from Chicago, and you'll hear it. He's from and of Chicago. There's a lot of great stuff when it comes to covering baseball in here. It's a lot of fun. When we talk about, we go down memory lane with some really great White Sox teams of the past, and more frustratingly, some great Twins teams from the past. We recorded this while the lockout was still going on. So when you hear that, know that there's some elements of there not being a conclusion to our conversation. And now you know what the conclusion is. But this was a blast, a blast. I was so happy to talk with him. And he had, he gave me time. When I reached out to him, he was recovering from covering the Olympics. And that's where we start our conversation. Lavelle Neal III of the Star Tribune, 
my guest this week on the House of L podcast. What's covering an Olympics like? Well, it was my first one, so I was kind of wide-eyed at the whole experience, you know. Um, I I didn't know what to expect. Um, the thing about my situation is that I work for a newspaper where uh, the Winter Olympics mean a lot in Minnesota, and we had 30 Minnesotans on the USA national team. Uh, in addition to the 30 Minnesotans, we had 21 uh, people with Minnesota ties who either lived here for a while or went to college here who played for, like, other countries. You know, like uh, Estonia's hockey team had a couple uh, women players from the state of Minnesota, things like that. There were three women from Minnesota who played for the Chinese women's team. So we were kind of keeping up with a lot of people every day. So I didn't know what that was going to be like. And plus, um, the other component is just being in China uh, during, you know, this current period. Uh, they're in zero COVID, you know, mode right now. So... We can only leave our hotels to go to the venues where the sporting events were at or to the media center. You know, we couldn't go out and check out spots or find different restaurants or kind of get involved with the locals a little bit and see how they feel about the Olympics being in their town. You know, because I, I thought it'd be cool if I just go find a bar that's showing the opening ceremonies and you know, sit there and figure out through translation somehow how they feel about the Olympics being there. You know, but you couldn't do stuff like that because um, of the restrictions we had. So. We had to get around that. And then um, the day after I get to China, the guy who sat behind me on the plane ride from Tokyo to Beijing tested positive for the virus. Oh, my goodness. I got thrown in close contact detail where I had to be tested twice a day and my movements were a little limited. I was banned from going to the opening ceremony, you know, at the last minute because somehow they were worried that I was going to get close enough to a dignitary that I could possibly infect them if I was even infected at all. You know, so I thought that was pretty hilarious. Um, so uh, I had to write that out for a week. And then the last two weeks were a lot of fun, just watching a lot of the events and covering a lot of athletes. And I never covered curling before, and I never covered skiing before. And getting to know, you know, local athletes who are really good, like Jesse Diggins and, and the curling guys who are really popular. And, you know, I was on the hill the day that Michaela Schifrin, you know, uh, slid and missed a gate and had her mental issue, you know. So that was a big moment that day, and everybody wrote about it. So um, it was, it was, it was rather fascinating. Uh, it was an enjoyable time, and the Chinese people I dealt with were kind. Uh, they were helpful. Some of them were funny. Uh, the bartender in my hotel gave me a big hug on the last day before I flew back. Um, you know, so um, so there were some there were some cool moments there. What gave you more trepidation? Was it dealing with COVID like before you get on the plane before you, you you get on the plane is it dealing with COVID or not knowing what to expect once you got to China I think it was not knowing what to expect once I got to China and my fears were allayed a little bit as soon as we landed um and let me tell you the airport every every airport worker it was like dressed in a hazmat like outfit from head to toe and uh the baggage handlers, uh, the people working, checking people in at the desk, you know, at the counters, um, people in security, they're all head to toe with outfits, uh, goggles. You can't, you can only see their eyes. You can't see the facial expressions or anything like that. Uh, but I felt comfortable right off the bat because while we're, we're in baggage claim and we're waiting for the shuttle bus to take us to the hotel and the baggage handlers in their outfits were like posing for pictures with some of the USA athletes which I thought that was pretty funny. So 
that kind of told me they they were they we weren't going to get the stink eye from them for for a couple of weeks. I, I was just kind of curious to see how they would react to having Americans around, uh, not knowing what they've been told or taught or whatever. But um, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Uh, I think they I think they let school out during that time because a lot of the volunteers were like university students. It looked like they're all in their like young uh, early twenties, and they were they would help us figure out what bus to get on and what time the bus was arriving, where was it going, and all that stuff. And they were always really kind and helpful. So doing that, so um, after the first few days, I I didn't think that uh, I, I felt a lot more comfortable, other than having to do that uh, close contact crap. Well, when when I went to I went to Montreal in August. Mm-hmm. When when they first kind of opened everything back up where we could travel to Canada mm-hmm. and being in Montreal, I go, man, like it the way that people approached covid was so refreshing that I felt really safe there with mm-hmm. it being the way that it was, as you described it in China. Did that make you feel better about the fight against covid because they were so careful about what movements were going to be allowed? Um, a little bit, you know, coming from the United States, though, our threshold's so different. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been vaccinated twice and boosterized, you know, and took a series of tests before I got on a plane to go there. You know, so I already knew I had to be tested every day. And by the way, Lawrence, it's not just the nasal deal. It is the longest Q-tip ever that stuck down your throat and swabbed of the back of your throat. Oh, uh, once a day, every day. So, and if you start to retch, they actually like that because they says it's a better way to get a sample that way. <laughs> so I had to go through that for the first week, twice a day. It's And when I got in this close contact bit, they would deliver me breakfast at 6 a.m. It was a crappy breakfast because they didn't want me going down into the dining room. And then at 6.10, the nurse is knocking on the door, dressed up in her hazmat outfit, ready to give me my first test of the day. So then they always wanted a second test at 6 p.m. So even if I was out like covering something or at the media center, I had to get on a bus to get back to the, to the hotel, but at second test. So that routine was a little aggravating, but you hit, it's their rules. I had to play by the rules and, you know, according to them, it's been effective how they've approached this. So yes, we, I, I think we did. Some of us did start joking that if someone gets COVID in this situation, then it's going to be a miracle because uh, you know, they, they had us pretty much under a bubble and they had, they were testing us every day. What's the image of covering the Olympics, like of the games themselves, that you'll keep in your mind forever? Well, as my first time and, you know, everything, you know, was a unique experience for me. So uh, just being able to see the passion that the athletes have toward competing, you know, because these aren't millionaire baseball players that I've covered for 23 years or millionaire football players. You know, these are people who have like side jobs sometimes you know, during the off season while they compete, you know, the guys in the current team, a couple of them like own liquor stores in Duluth, Minnesota, you know, when they're not, when mm. they're not currently. Mm. So mm. kind of like average Joe's and, and Jenny's, you know, getting a chance to, to realize their Olympic dreams and, 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 and try to find a way to win a medal, you know, and, you know, some are big time, you know, cause um, the skiers, you know, uh, compete on the world cup circuit, you know, during uh, when there's no Olympics around and um, there's other, international events and uh the cool thing was that you know it, it would have been cool if the nhl would have sent their players there because i think we all want to see the best on best but that wasn't available but the fact that college kids were on this team they had a lot of energy 
I had a chance to kind of meet the guys with the University of uh, Minnesota and see some of the other top college players in the nation on this team. You know, it, it was just really neat to kind of see how all that unfold. And the competitiveness too, the competitiveness too, Lawrence, um, the USA was playing Canada, women, okay, women in uh, group play. And so um, they don't have, they don't get along well at times. It's a kind of a heated rivalry. And there was a play in the first period where I think a Canadian player tried to draw a penalty. So she fell on the green, on, on, the, on the ice. And since there's no fans there in these stadiums, you can hear a lot of stuff that's going on. And all of a sudden, one of the USA women's players just screams, get on your bleep bleep feet. And I was like, oh, boy, I didn't expect to see fire like that. But uh, their competitive nature was definitely in full effect uh, in Beijing. When the Star Tribune comes to you and says, we want you to go cover the Olympics, was your first reaction, hell yeah, I want to do it? It was. I, I it, it was. It said, uh, hey, how do you feel about covering Olympics? I said, I'm in. And then I, there was a pause, and I said, wait a minute, where's it at? And then they go, Beijing. And I go, Ugh. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> I did. You could call my sports editor, Chris Carr, to ask for the exchange. And I, But two seconds later, I said, screw that. I got to go. I never, I'll never know if I ever get another chance to do something like this. Um, so I got to take advantage of this moment. And I hope I get a chance to cover future Olympics. These summer games are in Paris the next time around. The next winter games are in Milan, Italy. So I will gladly cover either, either one of those. And then the summer games after that are in LA. So I'm sure all of us will be there for that. But um, being able to, because I, like I, I wrote a column about this after I came back and I said, the thing that's uh, motivated, motivated me the most is similar to when I covered the World Cup in 1994 when it was in the United States. And USA played Brazil. And so I'm, I'm looking at some of these games that are going on before the USA game. And I'm covering the USA game. I'm like, where in the hell are these people at when there's no World Cup? So that made me start to follow the English Premier League and the Spanish League and the French League and the Italian League. And kind of started uh, piquing my interest as far as what world soccer was all about. I think the same thing's going to happen now that I've covered the Winter Olympics. I'm going to pay attention to the World Cup skiing results now because I know a lot of people who were at the Olympics, um, curling tournaments around the world, um, maybe even maybe the uh, the lower level, like you under 18, under 20 USA hockey matches that could, could end up having players I end up covering in the Olympics now. It's going to make me pay more attention, you know, to like international sporting events. Uh, so I can, I because I know these people now. I know the names. I've seen the faces. Now I have a peaked interest into what their next steps of their careers are going to be. Would it be fair to say that you kind of got known by covering baseball? Is that fair? That's very fair. Um, I covered, uh, let's see. Well, let's see. I um, The Royals, hired, right? Didn't you cover the Royals? Yeah. I was hired in Kansas City in 1989. And I was supposed to be an intern there. And I was supposed to work in Kansas City for four months. And then I was supposed to go to... Belleville, Illinois for four months and worked there. Then I was supposed to go to Albany, Oregon for four months and work there. Um, at the end of my four months in Kansas City, one of the high school writers uh, was proposed to by her boyfriend. And she walked into the office one day and said, my boyfriend just proposed to me and said, I don't have to work, so I quit. And she walked out of the door. So they had an opening, right? Like two weeks before I was supposed to move to Belleville, Illinois. So I ended up staying in the Kansas City Star 
and kind of cutting my teeth on high school sports, um, World Cup. I covered indoor soccer, covered short track racing, covered rodeo. I was I I, I covered rodeos too well. I ended up covering the ro- annual rodeo in Kansas City because I did too too good of a job. And then I got on a roll speed. Uh, I was named in September of '94, right after the strike started. And my first year was 1995. So I covered the Royals through the 97 season. And then I went to Minneapolis and covered the Twins from 98 till the end of the 2020 season. So that was 23 years uh, on the Twins beat. So that's, I think, people probably recognize me the most for it. And I guess finally I screwed up. You know, at the end of those 23 years, I did good enough to be promoted to columnist. So that's... Uh, uh, so that's what I'm doing now. I'm writing about all the sports and it's pretty neat. And the funny thing, Lawrence, in fact, people who are listening right now probably know who Paul Sullivan is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Sully works for Chicago Tribune. I will tell you this. Sully and I were on the same sideline at, uh, for Richards High School football uh, back in the late 80s when I was stringing for the, I don't know if the Daily Southtown is still uh, public, publishing, but I, so I was a stringer for the Daily Southtown breaking into the Chicago Tribune and we were covering high school football games together. We ended up both uh, covering baseball for most of our careers, and now we're both columnists. So it's pretty, it's pretty cool to see uh, um, my career kind of parallel that of, uh, of Paul Sullivan's. The Southtown is where I got my start, too. I was working on the it desk. Is. Yeah, I, I was. So let's see, what year is that? That is 94. I start working the 95. I start working in the desk over at the Southtown. Okay. There's no, there's no way Johnny Hector was still the sports editor then. I don't, he? I don't think so. I don't think that he okay. was a sports editor still then, but it was, it was such a great experience and you learn a lot because of how passionate people are about preps. Like, and, and I got some really good advice. Like it's really what people want is they want their kids names spelled right. And, yeah. and and they want to know, you know, just a little bit of what happened in the game. And the idea of the local newspaper and how important that is, it's it's stuck with me, you know, 27 years later, it's stuck with me on, on how big a deal that is. Oh, it is. It is. You know, and I learned some hard lessons those years. I remember Johnny Hector throwing my stories back at me and going, you need to clean up your copy here. Look at this. This comment is in the wrong spot. The grand, bad grammar you just, you just hear this guy's name is misspelled. And I was like, man, I was like, I suck. I don't know if I'm going to have a career <laughs> in this racket, you know? And, uh, but slowly, but surely I uh, kind of figured things out and, uh, and cut down on those types of mistakes, but I needed that. I needed people to jump my ass earlier in my career to kind of straighten me out. The reason that I asked you about baseball and obviously now it's, it's weird that it kind of comes full circle that you start your career during the strike now you and I are talking, and and we're at the the precipice of there being no season, at, at least for now. What's this like for you to see seemingly baseball not learn from any of its past mistakes? It's pretty sad, to be honest with you. And the thing is, Lawrence, is that baseball is broken economically, and it's also broken in the way the game is being played right now with the, the slow pace of play and the shifting and the analytics and the, and the launch angle and the geeks kind of taking over, over the game. You know, a lot of things need to be addressed here to make this game um, fast and fun to watch. Like it was when I first started covering baseball, but um, you know, and the, and the problem is the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred has a career in, in, as, as a labor negotiator. 
you know, the owners hired him to make sure he wins these battles. And he's been doing a good job of it so well. It's been it's been uh, reflective in how these deals have played out. And I kind of, you know, it's the players kind of uh, reap what they, they sow in these negotiations, but you kind of understand the principles when the player who was making the major league minimum five years ago brought home more than the player who made the major league minimum in 2021. You get that, you know, you get that. And what, meanwhile, franchise values are soaring and uh, owners are pocketed of ridiculous amounts of money. The uh, Braves had to release their financial figures last week and they made a, over a hundred million dollars in 2021. So no one can claim poverty in baseball. When they say that, um, the stock market is a safer deal. They're lying. They're saying that it's hard to cover to own a baseball team. They're lying uh, because people will be trying to get out of the business instead of fighting to get in. So um, I, 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 I don't like the way the the, uh, the negotiations over the labor deal have gone over the last couple of years. And like I said, the the way the games play. Um, yeah, I cover. I used to cover some games that were two hour fifteen minutes. Um, one time I covered Tim Belcher when he was pitching for the Royals in Toronto on getaway day. And he got us out of there one hour and 50 minutes, man. And now there are sometimes games that take three hours with three innings in an hour and 50 minutes, you know? So um, it's gone for a circle. Teams have done studies and determined that the longer pitchers take in between pitches, they gain that much more recovery percentage that they should take as much time as possible in between pitches to help them execute the next pitch. So pitchers are being taught to take all day. But I've sat in the press box with a stopwatch, and there's some pitchers with no one on base taking 23 seconds between pitches. And that's ridiculous. Mark Burley would have thrown four pitches by then, you know? Um, So we've got to address how the game's being played, and we got to get the owners and the players to figure out a better way to to split this ridiculous amount of money they're making every year. Yeah, I, I came up as a, a White Sox fan during Mark Burley's tenure with, on the South Side, and there's no one that Chicago reporters loved covering more than him because they knew that they were, on average, going to get like a 220 game, and yep. they weren't going to be at the ballpark all day or all night. Exactly. And, uh, you know, as a guy who grew up a White Sox fan because I'm a South Sider and uh, – but I think I'm a little bit older than you. I started watching the White Sox in the 70s when they had Dick Allen and Bill Melton and George Orta and those guys uh, on the team. But, uh, you know, always keeping a half an eye on what the White Sox are doing, even even when I uh, became a baseball writer full time. And, yeah, you knew Burley was going to work ridiculously fast. And it was hard to just break his pace either. The guys would try to step out of, out of the Bears box to no avail. Uh, Burley was going to force his will and his pattern of pitching on you, and you were just going to have to deal with it. And that really made him uh, what, he, what he was. And um, he would definitely was a thorn in the twin side through the years. Uh, he has twirled some gems against them um, uh, throughout his career. I think he won uh, his career record against Minnesota was like 20 and five or something like that. And I, I think it took like eight years for Jock Jones to get a hit off of him. Mm. <laughs> so uh, that's about Mark Burley, I remember. What high school did you go to? I'm a Catholic league kid. I went to Mendel high school. That's right. Because I, that's how we were talking on Twitter, how my brother was the last graduating class out of Mendel. Yeah. Right. And I grew up in 107th and Vernon, which is right off of King drive. And I walked to Mendel every day. And so uh, that was part of the powerful Chicago Catholic league. And uh, you know, our rivals are, 
where, you know, De La Salle and basketball and St. Rita. This was before Rita moved into the old Quigley South. Mm-hmm. When, um, well, I think they were on 67th Street, I believe. I mean, there was there. I want to say when you were in high school, there still was a Quigley South, right? Yes, there was. When my, my one of my buddies went to Quigley South off of Western in 70 something, I believe. 76th. That's right. I think uh, Rita moved into there uh, after Quigley stopped being Quigley. And so, you know, Mendel was on 111th to King Drive and all the public league schools were jealous, but they always show up to Mendel for all the parties. Damn right they did. Used to go to school and find out who got in a fight on the 34 Michigan bus on the way to school, you know, because they get into it with Fangfinger or get into it with Carver. You know, if you come from the other direction, they get into it with Corliss, you know, all those schools in the area. So, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, I was class of 83. I was at Mendel from 79 to 83. And um, I kind of liked why I kind of liked your your intro music, because that was right when house music was taken off. So uh, I kind of like how you bring it every day uh, when you when you come up, when you start to show. So um, and from there, I went to the University of Illinois for two years and then finished at UIC. And then I went to Kansas City on that uh, on that um, year long internship program that ended up being a four month internship program. When you come, what are the things that you miss about Chicago when you're not here? Um, when I was a young adult and driving from the south, far south side to go clubbing on the north side, <laughs> all the nice, you know, all the house music clubs up north were were on the north, we're in the north side, and then we stopped. We stop at Maxwell Street. We get a Polish at like one a.m. after we were done hanging out and have a and have a, a couple Polish sausages or a pork chop. Independent, you know, and, and have that grease kind of just leaking through the bag as we're trying to get home in time before it breaks, so you can so you can chow down before you go to bed. Um, the thing is, Lawrence, too, I learned more about Chicago after I started coming back on an expense account than I did when I was growing up there because our family didn't go hang out downtown a lot. You Neither know, did we mine. Were, we were all far south side people. We would go the other way. We go out to River Oaks and go out to um, I can't remember the shopping center out in Richmond Park, uh, Olympia Fields. I mean, or I want the Orland Square. You know, I mean, we I would operate there. You know, we would rarely go downtown. Uh, and the only time we went downtown was to pick my mother up from work because she worked at the merchandise mart. So, um, and that was the only time we had a chance to see downtown Chicago up close. And then I got into college when I came back. You know, for my last two years at UIC, I was right near downtown Chicago, so I got a taste of it that that way. But when I started coming back with a, a covering the Royals when they were in town playing the White Sox and then later on the Twins, uh, I got to, I, I was able to see what it was like, you know, what the Gold Coast was like and, and the water tower area and Rush and Division and all the bars and restaurants in that area and how much trouble you can get into in Chicago. Uh, that's what I learned when I started coming back on the expense report. It's so crazy that you say that because I, I have a very similar experience where you're right, like, you would go south. You would go to River Oaks or Lincoln Mall or Lincoln Mall. Yes. You, you, you would go south or maybe you would go into Indiana. And when I was a kid, I, I, I think about I don't think I was I don't look at it as necessarily being limited, um, but it, it is strange. I, I really didn't have a, a lot of experience downtown or on the north side until I went to college. Like I went to DePaul. And ending up in Lincoln Park was wow. 
it was a culture shock for me. Like it, it really took me a couple of months to adjust, and it's stupid stuff. Like the numbers were going the wrong way. You know, mm-hmm. like, like, yeah. I, I, it, and that that bothered me to, and but you're, I know so many people that grew up far south. Like I was 112th in in Halsted, like around there, and wow. okay, and and I I know so many kids that had never been to the lake, you know, like had 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 seen the lake but had never been to it, other than maybe going to Rainbow Beach, and and. I wow. wonder I wonder how many people I mean I really thank my brother like so my my brother big into the house music scene um spent a lot of time work for casual records clubhouse records has a bunch of incredible stuff that he's done on his own he's pretty much like a house music legend he would go to these he would be DJing these parties that you speak of he would be at clubs up north and occasionally I get to carry his crate of records um, to, to, to go to a party and be in a place that I had no business being in at, at, at 13 or 14 years old. But it's so interesting to me, folks who grew up south, like really out south, how our scope was limited because we didn't – there weren't easy ways for us to even get north. Like they're still – they're just now starting the expansion of the red line. And when we were kids, the Metro wasn't really a thing. And, and, and like, I'm, I'm like, man, I really didn't have that experience of getting up north until I was 18, 19 years old. Yeah, yeah I hear what you're saying. And for me, you know, I went to the University of Illinois, and that was culture shock for me because I believe at the time there was only 4% African-American students on campus. So uh, that, that was the first time. Because even though I went to a Catholic League school, I would say out of, the four years I was there, probably a total of like five white students. The entire four years I was at Mendel. So uh, being in classes with someone who didn't look like you was kind of a little bit of a culture shock. But I needed that experience because I was able to get to learn and meet other people with different backgrounds and find out that a lot of us think the same way or a lot of us have the same beliefs. And we all just want to, you know, get out, get a degree, get out of college and make a lot of money and have fun. And we all had the same same uh, goals in life. So. Um, but yeah, uh, as far as learning uh, downtown Chicago and everything I was involved in, in, in who worked in these big skyscrapers, no. Um, and it wasn't like I, like, I agree with you, it wasn't like I felt left out. We just didn't know any better. Right. You know, that, was our, that was just our, um, that's how we operated. We just operated south and, and farther south. <laughs> so uh, um, that, um, that did not bother me at all as a kid. Have you read Don Turner's book, Three Girls from Bronzeville? I have not. You should. I think that you'd really enjoy it because she talks a lot about her experience. And I think you guys are closer in age. Um, her experience at the University of Illinois. So I think that you Don and I Don and I were in school at the same time, I believe. That's you then you'll really dig it because she spends a lot of time talking about her time in Champaign. Um and really? it's yeah, and what it, it's What you just said kind of rung some bells because I had her on the podcast a few months ago and she was talking about how it was a shocking experience for her to end up in Champaign for like similar reasons to what you said. So I'd highly recommend her book for you. Oh, wow. I got to get that book. I got to see if I I got mentioned as like some anonymous guy who tried to holler at her at a party or something. (laughs) 
She did say that she changed the names on some things. So maybe that was you I was reading about in chapter eight. <laughs> oh, man, I got to check that. See, the thing, when I was in Illinois, too, I was a marketing major. I wasn't even thinking about getting into journalism. But the the whole marketing class thing wasn't going well. And I was falling asleep in Econ 101 because there's like 650 kids in a, this big-ass lecture hall. And then my rhetoric teacher was like, you're a good writer. You should think about becoming a journalist. I'm like, journalism? You can't make any money doing being a journalist. You know, that's what I'm thinking at, at age 16, 17, you know. But uh, there I was three years later saying, okay, I think I'm going to try to give this journalism thing a try here and see how far I could go. And unfortunately, it's got me this far. So I, I'm glad I was able to call an audible at the time I did and I made the right audible call. What was the moment when you knew that this was the right thing? Because it's one thing to make the jump, but once you're in it, when did you feel like, oh, wow, like this is this is exactly what I want to keep doing? Well, you know, uh, probably was my first year, first year or two in Kansas City, and I was still trying to um, figure out what it took to be a good writer. I was trying to read good writing and see and kind of, see how the people who had like the professional beats in our paper, you know, did their jobs and just trying to find my way. And it didn't seem like there was a lot of movement in the industry at the time. There wasn't a lot of movement in our paper. And I was kind of was like, man, am I going to end up covering high schools for my entire career? Mm. And then uh, I had a high school player. Uh, his name was Chris Lindsay, Lindsay, and he was supposed to go to Kansas. And he was out one night with some buddies screwing around at the railroad yard and fell and got his foot run over by a train. I ended up having his foot cut off and I ended up writing like a big powerful story about it. And it was like one of the few times at, up to that point in my career where I was able to kind of get some emotion into my writing and wrote what I was feeling through his eyes. And uh, it really kind of opened my eyes as to the type of stories I could write. And it was well received as well. I was, you know, the managing editor of the paper, you know, wanted to take me out to lunch and tell me what a great job he did in the story. And, and um, that's probably the only time I ever, uh, talked to him when he was congratulating me so I like kind of it kind of opened my mind up to what I could do and then when I was trying to uh, get on the baseball beat in 1994 when I covered the world cup I got picked I got ticked off because they sent someone else to cover the uh, USA Switzerland game which was played at the Pontiac Silverdome with, with grass brought in from outdoors into this dome and I was like, I'm the guy who's been covering high school soccer, picking the Mall Metro team, covering the indoor team, and you send like some old guy out to cover USA Switzerland. I'm not happy, you know. They're like, okay, well, go find the story about World Cup fever in Kansas City. So I'm like, oh God, how in the hell am I going to pull that one off? You know, I ended up in this bar where there were four guys, five guys. The guy was getting married that afternoon. His father and three brothers were in from Ireland. They were watching Italy and Ireland with their tuxedos on. And they were leaving the bar to go straight to the wedding after the game was over. Wow. <laughs> so that was like my, that just made my story. And after I presented them that one, they were like, okay, you can go to USA, Brazil. So um, I think I was at the right place at the right time, but there were little checkpoints along the way where I, you know, said, yeah, I can, I can be a good writer. I can write stories. I can entertain my readers. And I can, um, and of course, learn how to be a beat writer was another component that came later. But uh, my confidence was growing about that time in the early 90s. Well, that was kind of where I wanted to go next. Like, for you, what do you think makes for a good 
sports journalist and specifically someone who is on a beat? How do you do the job the right way? Well, fortunately, I, when I was, there was a stretch when I was covering the, the twins and we had a, uh, we had two people kind of on the beat and the other guy's name was Joe Christensen. And he kind of restored my faith because I was told that if in order to be a good beat writer, it's going to cost you your liver because you have to stay up drinking all night with these people to try to get them to <laughs> speak. You know, um, I was told you're going to have to be a a-hole a to some people to try to get what you want. You're going, to, you're going to have to call someone every hour and hour to try to force them to give you the information that you want. I was hearing all these stories, you know, and then I was going to the, the Black Journalist Convention every year. I'm sitting there listening to young Stephen A. Smith going, you know, I'm a bad man. I made Alan Iverson so mad he wouldn't talk to me for two weeks. And I'm like, man, do you really have to be, you know, that that way in order to, uh, to be an effective uh, beat writer? And I, I realized you really don't. You can be respectful and, and polite and hardworking. And, and as long as you're diligent and make a lot of phone calls, you know, the, I mean, the first person I got some hints from about how to cover a beat was just reading about Sam Smith at, at the the Tribune and Sam said he would make like 50 phone calls a day and uh so he was always talking to someone so I learned in my early years on the beat you got to keep talking to people regardless if it's through or in today's, today's day and age if it's a direct phone call if it's an email if it's a text message if it's a bump into a mental hall always chat people up uh because you never know when they're gonna give you a nugget of information that you could turn into a story or it may lead you on the path to a good story and so uh, I always use my ability to schmooze with people to kind of get to know them and, you know, make sure I always spoke to them and learned all the, um, the executives' names with the twins and the Royals. And um, eventually, you know, they would, they would, uh, they would get, tell me some things in confidence and they would give me heads up on things. And I didn't have to be a jackass in order to achieve that. Uh, so, um, but it, it's, and in this day and age, it can be a little more difficult like I, I would give you trying to cover baseball during the camp pandemic, you know, because there was no access in the clubhouse. Baseball clubhouse is one of the greatest places to get information from because one, you're there almost every damn day. Two, there's like 25 people in there and you can go into the corner of the, of the clubhouse and have a conversation with Tori Hunter and get an idea for like three stories or, you know, call the GM about, I just got a tip that you're trying to extend Tori Hunter's contract or something like that, you know? Um, not being able to get into the clubhouses during the pandemic was really tough. I was, I was down to using emails, text, and direct messaging on Twitter to try to connect with players just to try to get them to give me information that other people didn't have. Because when you're covering a team through Zoom and everybody's getting the same type of information you're getting, that just homogenizes coverage, you know? So I was trying to figure out ways to stand out. And I was using all the electronic tools I could come up with in order to talk to people. And the fact that I was respected in the clubhouse when I could tell the PR guy, hey, look, tell Taylor Rogers that uh, to follow me back on Twitter because I'm going to fire him a couple of questions on direct messaging. And 10 minutes later, Taylor Rogers has followed me going, what do you need? You know, and that, and that, that helps if you have a good reputation in the clubhouse, if you haven't burned anybody, if you haven't been an eavesdropper, or if you haven't made up anything on, on these players. They will give you information uh, if, if you if you give them a reason to respect. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. 
Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You've covered a lot of different sports. What's, what's unique about baseball coverage? Well, as a kid, I thought baseball has always been my favorite sport. I thought that hitting a home run is probably the greatest thing someone could do. And when we used to get together and like play softball as kids, like sometimes when 107th Street would play against 108th Street, or when Vernon Avenue would play against uh, Calumet Avenue or Forest Avenue, you know, I was Greg Lisinski and my buddy was Ron Kittle. And so we would, we would try to hit bombs every time, you know, we got to bat. So I was always, I, I collected baseball cards. I stayed in the house and was nerdy and watched the White Sox, you know, almost every day, you know, from the early 70s, you know, through the time I left to go to college and later on to begin my journalism career. Barely watched the Cubs. I, I tried to watch the Cubs in the early 70s. I just thought they wore pajamas for uniforms. I thought it was weird that their stadium had weeds on the wall. And, and they had people like Paul Popovich on the mound just getting blasted out of the ballpark by the St. Louis Cardinals. It just, it just wasn't, you know, for me. So I switched over to channel 32 and start watching the White Sox and saw Dick Allen hit home runs. And I'm like, yeah, this is for me. So baseball's always been my favorite sport. I love the fact that it's every day. I love the fact that I could get to the ballpark at two 30 on a game night. And when there's no one at the ballpark, except for a few people, you may have some players on the field, doing early work, taking extra BP, maybe taking uh, grounders at a different position. You're sitting going, okay, I see who's out here trying to get better. I see who's out here trying to uh, get off the bench, you know. But to get there at 2.30 and watch that stadium slowly come to life over the next four and a half hours, you know, those are special moments for me. You know, uh, when batting practice starts and the gates open and the music starts playing and you get close to the to the – the ceremonial first pitch and the lineups are announced, you know, and then you get to the first pitch, all that kind of crescendos right there at 7.05 PM on a nightly basis. And that really thrilled me. And that's why I've always had a love affair with the game, just because I enjoyed being in that moment. So um, I've been fortunate to cover my favorite sport and, um, and, you know, I can't, you know, I, I just feel really grateful because of that. How hard is that grind of covering baseball every day? Cause Lavelle, I gotta tell you, man, I I I spent a big portion of my career covering the NFL. I like it way better. <laughs> the, the, the schedule of covering the NFL is way better. I have so much respect for baseball reporters because of the amount of time you have to spend, and it, it's not just in the season now. Like it's, I mean, if if, if there was actually a collective bargaining agreement. There would have been people that were in Arizona and Florida for a month already. And to, to yep. basically go from February 
through November because you got the meetings and everything else. I don't know how how baseball reporters do it. it you have to have a certain DNA or develop that type of DNA for um, the daily grind that is covering baseball. And you're right. It's every day. And the person who replaced me on the beat, I had a long conversation with her and I said, this is what your day is going to be like. You're going to come to the ballpark at 2.30. You got to write a pregame notebook. You got to find some fodder for that pregame notebook. Maybe you got some stuff that you can expand on after the previous night's game, or you have to go interview someone to get some nugget that you can put in the notebook uh, for tomorrow's paper. You got to check on injuries. Usually injury updates are pretty much a daily occurrence after the first two weeks of, of the season, sometimes the first day of the season. So you got a notebook to do. And then, you know, in our, in our, in our industry, you know, you got to have a story written by the, by the final out so it could go online and then go in our first edition, which usually shoves at 10 p.m. And then you have the opportunity of getting some quotes to write a final edition that has to make sense and is entertaining, usually by 1130. Um, because of games lasting three hours and three and a half hours and longer now sometimes games are not over we're not taught we're still talking to people at 11 o'clock leaving us with about 25 minutes to hammer out a story and I told her I said and here's the thing about this it's rinse it's wash rinse repeat the next day you know you've got to get used to this cycle you got to get used to the 2 a.m the 9 a.m sleep pattern um you got to be prepared to go to 47 days of spring training uh, in mid-February through the end of March. Um, you got to be prepared to go stand in a hotel lobby trying to pick off people for a week at the winter meetings. You know, that's, the, that's, the, that's the baseball cycle. And covering football is totally different. I got a lot of fellow baseball writers who are divorced just because of the demands of their job and hours they're away from home. It just was not compatible to having relationships. People covering NFL teams, you know, you can be in town all week, you know, uh, going out to going out to um, the practice facility, you know, write, working on stories, writing notebooks, you go fly it on a Saturday night, have a nice dinner on the road Saturday night, cover the game. Maybe it's a noon game. You cover that noon game. You can make that 7 p.m. flight back home and you've only missed like a day from your family. You know, baseball, it requires total different, totally different commitment because you're at the ballpark all the time. You brought up Dick Allen. Why is he not in the Hall of Fame? I'm baffled at that. Um, I, I think he should be. And before this cycle, when Tony Olivia and Jim Cock got voted in, I was I was in the I was in the uh, conference room at the winter meetings when they announced that Dick Allen and Tony Oliva had missed the Veterans Committee vote by one vote. And we're talking about six six eight years ago. Um, you know, Dick Allen hit 351 home runs in his career. You know. Uh, he, I, he, I think he hit once, hit 37 homers and drove in like 115 RBI in a season. And no, I don't have my computer open up to his, his page on baseball reference. I know that off the top of my head. That's why that was how big of a Dick Allen fan I was. Um, he had the arms of life and hearing Dick Allen stories from like other baseball people after I started covering baseball just m- made me appreciate, appreciate what he was even more. Uh, Bob Boone was the manager of the Kansas City Royals when I covered the Royals. And, you know, he played on the Phillies. So he knew, he knew Dick Allen, you know, and he said, he said, Richie Allen was the only guy who would come to the ballpark hungover from the night before and hit the first bat and practice, practice pitch 450 feet. And I'm sitting there going, man, that guy had to be something else. You know, I never had a chance to meet him and I wish I would have, um, 
I wish he would have had a chance to get into the hall while he was still smelling the roses, but that didn't happen. But maybe, you know, maybe he'll have his day in the sun here the next time that his class and the Veterans Committee is voted upon. I was really happy to see Minnie Minoso get in. Yep. Because I just feel like that guy, it's, it's the baseball resume alone is good enough to get him in the Hall of Fame, but the cultural aspect of what he was, there's so much value in it. And the, the White Sox are still reaping the benefits of it, to tell you the truth. I, I was elated when I found out that he was going in the Hall. Did you have any run-ins with, with Minnie? I never had a chance to meet many, but, you know, there were a lot of stories uh, advocating him for the Hall of Fame before this last cycle. And the one thing that struck me was that uh, people who played with him, who were around him at that time, he may have been, you know, one of the best teammates ever and the effect he had on the clubhouse. And those people are valuable. You know, those people, you know, help teams move, move forward when times are tough to you know, end losing streaks, but before they get any longer to extend winning streaks, um, energy guys, chemistry guys, those guys uh, are vital in a major league clubhouse. And if you're good, like he was, and is an energy guy that just makes it even doubly sweeter. So um, I, I'm thrilled that many, I, many got in. I thought it was kind of a goofy prank when uh, he was, you know, taking, getting the bat so he could play in four decades. But uh, you look at it, the totality of his career, you was like, yeah, this guy was a damn good player during his career. And, um, and it's, it's awesome that the, he had a chance to get to the Hall of Fame. What was it like for you growing up as a White Sox fan to then cover Twins teams that all they did was terrorize the White Sox? You know, the one thing, once, once I knew, like, once I got on the world's beat, I was forced to say, well, I can't be a White Sox fan anymore. You know, because even when I was working at the Kansas City Star, like covering high school sports, I'm still, you know, talking trash to other people at the office about, you know, Frank Thomas is going to be the most feared slugger in baseball. You just watch, you know, things like that, you know. Um, and uh, there was a guy who was from Cleveland. So it was this Albert Bell argument, you know. So, um, but I couldn't do that anymore since I became a beat writer because I got to be objective. So I kind of had to tamp down my my love of the White Sox in order to uh, do my job. Uh, but it was crazy because part of the twins um, uh, journey from just being that terrible team that lost like 97 games in the, in like 1998 or 99 to being the team that won six division titles in the two thousands was how they rolled over the White Sox to get to that point. People, you know, White Sox fans are still cringing about Torrey Hunter running over their catcher at home plate. Jamie Burke, yes, I still he is still emblazoned in my mind. Yes, and and Isaac Gians, you know, basically came out and said, "I wish my team played like that." You know, <laughs> and it just uh, created that firestorm. So there was always a little animosity between those teams in the early two thousands when they when they started bumping heads. You know, um, throwing at each other, pitching inside, talking trash you know, behind the scenes, trying to show that we're tougher than the other team. Uh, Ozzy didn't help matters, you know, because Ozzy loved having the reporters hang around him because he didn't want them bugging, bugging his players. So he would always say crazy stuff to just keep the focus on him, like when he called the Twins the Little Piranhas and called Nick Punto Ty Cop Punto, you know, stuff like that, just to just to, uh, uh, to, to keep the interest on him going. But, um, and then a lot of that started when Jerry Manuel was, uh, 
was the manager, if I'm not mistaken. I, I remember at the winter meetings one year, you we go, we have the uh, annual managers luncheon, so the beat writers are are sitting with managers, and so it was Chicago and Minneapolis reporters sitting at the same table with Ron Gardenhire and Jerry Manuel, and this is right when, you know. Uh, shots are kind of being fired between the players from both teams, you know, but Jerry Manuel and Gardy were like good friends. You know, they were laughing about the whole thing. So it was weird what was going on behind the scenes uh, from some people while on the field, you know, these teams wanted to kill each other in the early 2000s. Really? It, it's, it's the case. And they were the gold standard. You know, I, I yeah. even like the way that the twins, like how, how Gardy always valued getting the first run of a game. Because he thought that it put pressure on, on and and you look up in so, a lot of those games between the White Sox and and the Twins and and they're the Twins with a, a a first run in like they're sacrificing in the first inning because Gardy wants to put pressure on the other team, right? And they, at the time, this was pre-target field, so they're playing in the dome, so they're on that turf, and Christian Guzman hit a rolling, a hard rolling grounder that would roll to the wall and he would leg out a triple and you got guys on the white Sox. they were i can't remember who was it was um he was quoted in the paper going you look at this lineup you're like how does how does this team score runs but stuff crazy stuff would happen like that they get the ball to bounce off the asher turf and run it out for a double or the, the ball get lost in the lights down the left field line because there's a dead spot down the left field line and that would lead to runs being scored and then the twins would win these games and a lot of them were at the expense of the white Sox. so um, it was just, it was remarkable watching some of those games unfold between the Twins and the White Sox. And then the White Sox won in what, 05, 06. And um, they had their run and had AJ Przinsky on that team. And, you know, Twins fans were sickened by that because they knew that you rather have AJ on your team instead of with the other team, because then you were just going to get it from him. And, you know, the Twins fans had to sit there and watch uh, AJ give it to the Twins. Um, when he was winning with the White Sox, so um, it's been a, it's been a very interesting history, and um, even the last couple of years, not last year as much because the Twins kind of had a bad year, but 2020 was kind of interesting because you saw the White Sox with some young talent, Yo Mankata and Elo Jimenez, and my God, Luis Robert is just loaded with bags of skill, and I'm sitting there going, these guys going to kick the Twins' ass for the next ten years. <laughs> I hope the twins are ready for this, you know? So once we get through labor wars and get post pandemic, you know, uh, I expect to see some interesting games between the twins and the white Sox going forward. I do too. I, I, I think that it's going to be very, very interesting there. Well, what do you, how do you define the role of a columnist in 2022? Uh, I think it's a little different. Um, it seems like uh, it, yeah, and I'm still learning too. I mean, I just I'm, I just passed my year anniversary as a columnist, so I'm still trying to find the, the good stories to write, the cool stories to write. Um, going to the Olympics, it was a slam dunk. I pretty much knew I was writing every day, um, but um, you know, uh, trying to cover everything on a local level. You know, you want to make sure all the good stories locally are written. You also want to have that voice when you want to be critical. Um, when someone need, when you need to jump down someone's butt for not performing well. I don't know if columnists are as vicious as they were maybe 15, 20 years ago. I don't know how many Jay Mirati's are there anymore uh, in this world. Um, you know, Ray Rattle may be the closest thing and Rattle's been doing it for a long time and he, he cracks me up uh, cause he doesn't care. 
Uh, I miss Ken Rosenthal when he worked for the Baltimore Sun because he used to just tear into the Orioles and did not care what they said in response to what he was writing. But I don't know if you have that type of venom um, in the paper like you used to, but you still have to be critical and you have to, you know, be mindful of all the stats that are out there now. Um, and the other thing too, Lawrence, is that we're, we're, the lines are being blurred a little bit. Yeah. Columnists are now on radio. They're now doing television shows. And guess what? They need to have guests on. So now the, some of the people that you're covering, you're having them on radio shows. So you, it, it's like, uh, you, I, I don't know if you, you intentionally do it or subconsciously pull your punches, I think. And some of how, and how some of this column writing is going on, because I fill in every now and then at KFN, which is a local sports talk show here. And uh, I need to have guests on. And sometimes I have twins players on that I cover, you know. Um, and sometimes I've had that conversation when I say, you know, if you give it up today, I got to write about it. And I was like, you know, I know, I know, I know you know. So uh, I think the cool about it, I still think that with today's um, journalism and it's everywhere and the immediacy of it, with thanks to Twitter and Instagram and um, and writers being on radio and television, you know, lines are so blurry now that you, I, I just, I don't think you have that comfortability with someone just, you know, pulling out the howitzer and letting it fly anymore, you know? I, I agree. And I, I think you're right about the, the concept of the blurring of the lines. It's, it's very, it's, it's weird because <sighs> you try to figure out how can you most effectively reach your audience. And I always right. describe it as, as the driver in the golf bag that there are going to be days. Like when I was younger, I mean, I would bring the driver out every single day, like every, like a mad at the world type stuff. And right, then, right. and then you have to learn that you don't, you don't have to play that way that, that you can make your point without, always pulling the driver out of your bag. And and now we live in a space where it seems like the access to almost everyone inside of any type of organization is impacted by how hard you go at that organization. That that everyone seems to have rabbit ears and they are they are willing to be like, "Oh, well weren't you weren't you just now you want to talk to me after you were you were tearing our, our our organization up? I'm like, yeah, that's I'll be fair, but I'll I'll be stern when I have to be. Yeah, I think you're right, and it, of course it's different too. I'm not in, I'm not in a market like Chicago. I I live in Minnesota, so I think we're like the 14th or 15th largest market. So the demands on that type of writing aren't as great, I don't think. Um, and I don't think that the teams feel as much heat as teams in larger markets do when criticism is thrown out there. Uh, in fact, when, if I write a critical column, I've got like some twins official laughing going, well, I see you really ripped Byron Buxton in the paper today. Ha ha ha. You know, and whereas in another market that same official may be trying to defend this player, you know? So um, I, I think the market has something to do with it as well. As I've told you, bluechew.com has become one of the sponsors here at house of L. And you're like, Lawrence, what's Blue Chew? Well, look, if you're a man that's been dealing with some of the issues of not having enough fun or not having enough confidence in the bedroom, BlueChew.com can help you out in that regard. 
Why? Because they've got a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in a chewable form. Get it? It's Blue Chew. So if you want to get back in the bedroom and you want to bring some confidence to the table with you, BlueChew.com. And right now we are offering a special deal specifically for House of L listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use the promo code House of L at checkout. All you're going to pay is $5 in shipping. That's BlueChew.com, promo code House of L to receive your first month free. They deliver it. It's discreetly delivered so that people are not in your business that you don't want in your business. And they've got chewable there. It's ready to go. It's licensed. Medical providers work with you to find the right ingredient and strength for your prescription. So do it. Blue it, chew it, and do it. I just made that up. Is you going to give me extra money for that? I don't know. BlueChew.com. Free trial. If you use the promo code House of L, go to bluechew.com. And now, on with the rest of the pod. When it comes to young journalists, what's what's the best piece of advice that you feel that you've shared with them? Good writers are good readers. So I would encourage them all to try to find as much good writing as possible, um, especially now because you have access to the internet. I know you have to pay to get to some of these websites, but you know, as a columnist now, I'm still I'm trying to read the columnist, the LA Times, you know, Chicago Sun-Times, the Tribune, and um, like the Washington Post, you know, there's guys like Jerry Bembry, who I love reading, you know, um, who are really thoughtful and, and thorough about their, with their columns. So I try to see how the other ones do it. But when I was a beat writer too, I try to read, you know, how other people are covering their teams and when the things they're putting in game stories and whether they're making notebooks out of. Um, you can always, you know, go through the list of the best American sports writing every year and tear through one of those books. Although a lot of those stories aren't necessarily good for a beat writer. Those are usually enterprise feature stories that are really good. I'm not taking away from those, but it may not be applicable to what you're trying to do. But man, I would just say, I would just say, read as much as you can. Uh, you know, growing up in Chicago, uh, at the time I was a kid, we have, we have four papers. We had the Chicago Sun-Times, the Tribune, the Chicago Today, and the Daily News. And my dad would allow me to go buy two of the four uh, every morning. So I would go to the corner newsstand, which I don't think exists anymore in America. Ah, you know what? I was I I grew up the same way, right? Like I I grew up yeah. getting the paper and the newsstand. Like there was a big newsstand at the 95th Street L station, not too yes. far from where I went to grammar school. I made right, note right. of this, and you're probably the only person that will get the same amount of joy that I got when I saw this. I was driving down 31st Street and okay. near 31st and Halsted, I saw. An old school newspaper shack that I was that I I I, will, I gotta go back and I gotta take the picture of it. And I don't believe you. It looked it looked active. Like it, it wasn't like it's been locked up and and is busted down from the last 20 years. 
it looked like I could go get a paper there today if I wanted to. And I just no smiled. I smiled and smiled. I was like, I can't believe it. It is like seeing a payphone. And, it, man, it got to the point where in the morning, like when I was going to UIC and I was leaving the house, same house, 107th and Vernon, and I had a Cutlass Supreme. I pulled a Cutlass Supreme up, uh, roll, have the uh, passenger window rolled down and have the 50 cents sitting in the seat. The guy would walk out. He'd pick up the 50 cents out of my seat, drop a couple papers in it, and I'd be on my way. And that was my daily ritual, man. Um, I, uh, and I didn't know. I, I'm thrilled to hear that there may be one of those still in operation. That's worth a column in itself. I'll go by and, and take a picture, and I'll text it to you. And I used to, like, I used to live right off of 63rd and Woodlawn. And for the uh-huh. first, like, I w- it, was, it was one of those places that – it still had like on Woodlawn at at the corner. There was still one there, but you could tell that it hadn't been occupied in like four or five oh, years. <laughs> and when they finally like tore it down, tore it down, I was so sad. I was like, "Oh, come on, man! Like, a, someone has to build a business out of it." Ah, oh, that's too bad. Too bad it could have been renovated and restored. That would have been really cool. Yeah, and of course now the house is over there going for six hundred thousand dollars. But that's a whole nother story. Um, what's where? Where do you where do you think as an industry we can get better? Well, I will tell you this: the one thing that uh, we have to be careful of going forward. And it, it still hap- it happens now that we can't fall into the same trap that other people on Twitter or Instagram do when something happens and we rush to judgment and we overreact to something we see on social media and just pass it off as fact until all the facts are actually known. And I think it, there's been a couple of times where it's led to um, dangerous reporting just based on the first threads of information that are out on the subject and it's been a couple times i'll get i've gotten into the argument with my editor my baseball editor in the past over well they're saying that the the twins are close to trade for this guy i'm like dennis i'm telling you man that's not what i'm hearing we're not going to run with this can we just wait and let me do some reporting let me do some reporting before we go there we can't be like everybody else i think those traps are out there uh in the social media land um and it's tough because everybody wants to be first um, uh, breaking a story is not like it was 25 years ago when you it just came out in that day's paper and your competition had to walk around town butthurt all day because uh, they you had something in the paper that they didn't. Now that butthurt only lasts like half an hour, <laughs> and then you're trying to you're trying to get them the the, the next hour. So, um, but I I think I, that's my trap. I think a lot. That's a trap. I think we have to avoid sometimes is rushing to judgment like everybody else because I call them 12 percenters, but I actually think it's probably larger than that. I think it's a group of about 20% of people who shouldn't be on Twitter and they just make it a terrible experience for everybody else. And when stuff like that happens, they're at their worst. So um, we have to remember, we have to be thorough, even for the immediacy of social media, we still have to be thorough in our reporting and try to verify things before we just pass other things off as fact. Last thing. I know I talked to you about being back in Chicago, but mm-hmm. what's what's a food item or restaurant that you seek out when you're back in Chicago? Uh, God, some of them open and close and they close and open. Um, 
I love eating at the Weber Grill. Uh, if that's still open, I, I love going there. Uh, where else? Oh, Blue Malnati's. Uh, that's a that's a slam dunk. But I feel bad now because, like, I love going to Lou's every time I'm in town because I think their pizzas are really good and they're I think the, for the price it's good bang for the buck. But apparently, like, the pizza game in Chicago has gotten so competitive. Like, Lou's would be like 15th on the list of like best pizzas in town. So I'm like, I feel like I need to go check out some of these other pizza places to, to compare. Because growing up, it was just Geno's, Geno's East, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, if there's a better pie out there, and Lawrence, I have to admit, it was about five years ago. I was in, I was in the cover of Twins White Sox series. I had to stop at the the relocated Maxwell Street location <laughs> to check out Polish sausage, and. It wasn't the same, you know. The fifty years of grease built up in the, in in the, the old stove that was on the one off Halsted. Yes, you know, it just wasn't the same because these newer grills just weren't seasoned enough with years and years of cooking and onions being fried on them uh, to create that same flavor. I was disappointed. Do, do you remember uh, Brass Monkey Pizza or Rossi's Pizza? Rossi's, yes. I remember Rossi's. Rossi's was my spot, man. Like, we used to go there every Friday, and, I mean, that was a trek. Like, to get to 87th and Stony from 112th and, and Green, like, like. That's a haul. Yeah, and my dad was totally up for it, man. We we had a wonderful time. Like, it was, uh, some of those places, like, I, I, I did a whole list on the show a few weeks ago of, like, some of my favorite restaurants that no longer exist in Chicago. And oh man! Well, I, when I was at USC, when I was at USC, we used to uh, hit Eduardo Eduardo's for pizza, and I don't know if they're around anymore. But our student newspaper at USC was next door to the Greek Student Association, and we used to like hang out with them a lot because they used to have Uzo in their office. Oh, so at times we would go meet them at Zorba's. I don't even know if Zorba's is still open off Austin, right? On the it is. It's it's still there. It is okay. Cool. That place is pretty pretty neat. I, I, there was a place uh, on 91st in Stony called the Tropical Hut. And I remember that place. And man, if it was a fancy meal, if we were, if the Holmes family was celebrating something, we were celebrating at the Tropical Hut. And yeah, I feel bad that there's places around like Stony Island, you know, in that 79th to 87th Street uh, corridor that I know we used to go to once in a while. Maybe some places off 95th that I just can't think of right now. But, uh, yeah, you're right. Oh, and my, my mother loved Church's Chicken. Man, oh. she's, she used to send me to go get some Church's Chicken every now and then so she could have her get her fixed. So, <laughs> Man, this was awesome. I appreciate you so much for doing this. This is great. Um, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It, it means a lot. I appreciate you having me on. It was an honor to uh, be your subject, man. So. <laughs> Let's stay in touch um, as I get used to being a columnist here uh, and uh, as we move forward in this day and age. So For sure. And if there is a baseball season when Twins and White Sox play, I'm, I want to have you on. Okay, definitely. Bet. All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, Lawrence. Take it easy. Man, talking with Lavelle, like, really, really, like, that was so – it's so interesting how his path and journey – is so similar to mine. Even though I think we're 10 years apart. I think that's the the, the span of our ages. We're 10 years apart. 
but his feelings about the South Side and and it's so spot on. I love what he said about how we have to be careful and that some of the old school ways of doing journalism hold tremendous value in a world that's forever trying to get faster. Like we're trying to get the information faster. And there's a danger. There's a a real true danger in not going through the steps of verification on stories. I'm not saying that I've, I've never gotten caught doing it, but I am often skeptical. And I try to keep a little bit of that skepticism when it comes to working through any sort of breaking news item. And you have to be aware of how you're going to try to be manipulated by anyone that you cover. And I I don't mean that necessarily as a pejorative. In some cases, it is a pejorative. But you are going to be leveraged in, in every story because people want to be the heroes of their stories. And I completely understand that. I would want to be the hero in mine. But I, I love all the tips that he had in there. And he's right about what a job like this does to relationships. It can be rough. I talk with my students at DePaul about this all the time, that if you are ready to embark on a career like this, you better have a strong partner. And that doesn't mean that your partner is just going to you know, lie down and, and put up with nonsense. But they have to be aware that when you're first starting out, you might end up in a place like Lavelle was where, well, I have to go be a part of this internship where I'm going to spend a third of the year in one city, a third of the year in another city, and a third of the year clear across the country. That stuff matters. You, <laughs> the person that you're with might not want to be in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. They just might not want to do a winter there because you found a job there. So I think it's really, really valuable stuff. And it's just fun. Like, God, I love talking about Chicago. I really, I've been thinking about this, and I I guess someone could steal the idea before I get the first episode published. But I really want to do episodes that are just about neighborhoods and, like, people growing up in them. Lavelle and I grew up in the same neighborhood. And we both have stories out of Roseland. A bunch of them. So maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll I'll start plucking people to ask them to tell me about the neighborhoods in which they grew up in. That could be fun, right? I know a lot of people from all around Chicago, so I guess I could probably do that. Huh. See how ideas form? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Follow Lavelle on Twitter. He's so great. Lavelle Neal the third. And know that there's a White Sox fan up in Minnesota holding it down, which I appreciate. Peace.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.